Hello, and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. Okay, I know. About now, you might be wondering if you really want to spend 45 minutes of your life listening to a podcast about taxes. I think you do, and here's why. It's pretty much impossible to create and sustain a more compassionate, powerful government, one that's up to the huge challenges of our time, without raising taxes. The public sector at every level, federal, state, and local, needs more revenue to deal with our crumbling infrastructure and failing schools, to expand the safety net, to pay the vast costs of responding to climate change, and much more. But it's not just higher taxes that America needs, it's also smarter taxes. We need to tax the people and corporations who can most afford it, and we need to root out the economic and social distortions that can flow from bad tax policy, not to mention collect the hundreds of billions of dollars lost annually to tax evasion. I've been super interested in tax policy for years. To me, there are few more important issues because when progressives and Democrats lose the battle on taxes, as we so often have, we lose the larger war over the role of government. It's been baffling to me that tax policy doesn't get more attention from those leaders and institutions working to create a fairer America. Most think tanks and policy groups on the left do zero work on tax policy. In contrast, conservatives have been obsessed with this issue for decades, and they've won a series of huge victories since 1981, passing trillions of dollars in tax cuts that have served to hobble government which, by the way, is very much part of their plan. It's only been in recent years that tax policy has generated real interest in progressive circles thanks to bold proposals for a wealth tax. Now, with Biden in office and Democrats in control of Congress, we're likely to be talking a lot more about this topic. Biden has pledged to raise taxes by more than $3 trillion. One organization that has been waiting for this moment is the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, which is based in Washington, D.C., and led by Amy Hanauer. I've known Amy for a long time, and for most of that time, she was the director of Policy Matters, a think tank in Cleveland focused on Ohio. She started her current job last year. It's great to have a chance to talk to her today. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics. And I'm also founder of Inside Philanthropy, which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. Hi, Amy. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, David. Great to see you. So before we get into the super exciting, utterly fascinating, and all-important subject of taxes, I'd like to ask you about your last job. You spent 20 years leading the top progressive policy group in Ohio, and so I wonder how you feel right now after the last two elections, uh, Ohio seemingly a deeper uh, shade of red than ever. Does that feel kind of heartbreaking to you? Well, it is heartbreaking. I also think it can be turned around. Um, You know, we continue to uh, elect Senator Sherrod Brown, one of the most progressive senators in the country, and certainly the best at talking about economic equity and how it relates to racial equity while being really um, unapologetic about taking a progressive stance on almost everything. 
So I think it remains a place where we can have wins if we organize right, if we build up the party right, and if we talk about issues in the right way. Um, and also if we do more to help ensure that workers are represented by unions, because if there's one thing that 20 years in Ohio taught me, it's that when workers are represented by unions, they look at policy and politics and elections through a uh, economic justice lens and it makes them vote much more um, much more likely to vote for politicians who are going to do things for the working class. You know, I noticed, though, that Trump won the uh, vote of uh, union households by 12 percentage points. Uh, I don't know whether it's the same for Sherrod Brown, but I just found that statistic kind of jaw dropping. I mean, union, I mean, it's not new, of course, union households have often voted for Republicans, but what is that about? You know, I think that part of it is that the union, the labor movement really needs to be organizing new sectors. I think to a large degree, the labor movement represents sectors that um, are feeling locked out of a new economy and um, are whiter. And I mean, that's it, it's a little bit complicated, but I think in, in Ohio, it's a little bit complicated. But, you know, to the degree that the labor movement represents service sector workers, represents nurses aides um represents teachers i think that there's just a lot of room to grow and build that would actually result in real um real wins for working class people in a kind of cross-racial class solidarity it is complicated it's not an easy set of questions but i i have not given up on the midwest yet and i have not yet given given up on Ohio. <laughs> yeah well um biden did rebuild parts of that blue wall. So um, it's not a completely lost cause. Um, okay, so now let's go on to taxes. Um, and before we get into stuff happening in Washington and also tax issues at the state level, uh, I want to ask you if you share my longstanding frustration that tax policy tends to get ignored by a lot of people and institutions, including funders, that care a lot about government and have all sorts of ideas for, for, for new government spending, but seem to care not at all about taxes and ignore the issue. Is that also your sense? Absolutely. I mean, there is no question that like everything that we want to accomplish among progressives, if we want a robust climate justice policy, if we want to address longstanding racial inequities and racism in public policy, if we want better schools and better lives for our kids and better childcare and, um, you know, better health care in a pandemic, all of that depends ultimately on having a revenue system that raises adequate amounts of revenue from those most able to pay. And yet everybody who's happy to talk about where they want to spend the money is often not really nearly as happy to talk about where they want to get the money. And I think that's a huge mistake because I actually think there's a thirst among the American public for a fair tax system. Most people don't, um, you know, don't think that the wealthy and corporations pay their fair share. They're right about that. And most people would like to see the wealthy and corporations paying their fair share. So I think there's just a lot of room, not only from a policy perspective, but also from a political perspective to build support for a robust revenue program that, that taxes those most able to pay. So why do you think it is that people's eyes glaze over? I mean, I'm super fascinated by tax policy, but I've just noticed, I mean, just over the years, like people's eyes glaze over, like even like smart people who know a lot about public policy 
just seem to know zero about tax policy and have no interest in the topic. Do you have like any psychological insights as somebody who leads a, a tax policy center? Yeah, 100%. I mean, first of all, tax policy can be can seem really, really, really complicated, especially since we've had moneyed interests chipping away at the tax code in a gajillion different ways for decades. So um, it, there are these really complicated changes and rules that, that people don't understand and that um, very well well compensated people are paid to really understand that are difficult to explain to you know a regular uh, citizen or even a regular reporter um, or a state level lawmaker. So I think that's one reason. And, and then I think another big reason is just this very false um, right wing narrative on how the economy works that makes people nervous that the very things that would actually make our economy work better, people fear will somehow have some unanticipated consequence. So just like there's an inaccurate fear about raising the minimum wage and jobs, which has been disproven time and time again, like we know that raising the minimum wage actually gets more money into the hands of working class people and um, can even create jobs. There's a similar fear that somehow if we, you know, if we have people pay their fair share, that's going to somehow um, suppress the economy. There's really no evidence for that, but it's it's a fear that people have. So I think the combination of the complexity and the worry that they're somehow missing um, missing things make, makes people um, reluctant to take it on. Right. Of course, even policy wonks who are used to complexity and favor higher taxes, uh, a lot of them seem disinterested too. And uh, I'm just I'm just not sure why why that is. Well, you know, and the other thing, and I should say, like, I think the fear is totally misplaced, both from a policy perspective and from a political perspective, because the truth is that raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations is actually pretty popular. So I don't think that we have to be so worried that we're sort of going against the grain when we think about doing those things. But I think the other thing is um, just that people love to talk about what they want to spend, right? <laughs> they love to talk about what they want to spend resources on. Everybody can look at a family and say, oh, you know, those people probably want childcare for their kid after school or, um, you know, more help taking care of their elderly parent um, or cleanup of the, of the, you know, of a contaminated site in their community, those things feel clearer and, and more um, comprehensible. Of course, every single one of them depends on adequate revenue at the state and local and federal level to, to pay for those things. Well, even as progressives seem to have been largely checked out on tax policy, uh, until just recently with a lot of talk about the wealth tax, which I want to get into, uh, the right wing, the conservative movement, I mean, they have been laser focused on tax policy for 40 years, and it's been one of their animating issues. Uh, and I, you know, it seems like they have just done a much better job of, of mastering the complexities of this issue and influencing tax policy. Is that your sense that the right has just completely cleaned the, the left's clock on this issue for, for a generation? Yes and no. I mean, the fact is that the Trump GOP tax law that was passed in 2017 that gave a tax cut of $50,000 to the average person in the top 1% that made it so that 91 profitable Fortune 500 companies pay absolutely nothing in taxes um, 
that you know that that gave away trillions of dollars to mostly wealthy people and corporations it actually was incredibly unpopular so it was not a popular piece of legislation so in a sense they are winning they are winning because when republicans get into power it is guaranteed that wealthy people and corporations will get a tax cut that's sort of the implicit promise that they will use race wars and culture wars to bring along um, some parts of the white community, of the white working class community, and then they will keep their promise to the wealthy community and to the business elite and to Wall Street that they're going to lower their taxes. And somehow it has worked for them. And it's worked for them in part because we don't have a real democracy in a lot of ways. Like it's worked for them in part because, um, you know, the, who wins the popular vote doesn't necessarily win the presidency frequently in the United States. So, um, I think it is complicated, but it is true that they have managed to um, have the power to push through tax cuts that mostly benefit the wealthiest and corporations, and that really leave working people and, and poor people and our planet kind of struggling because we can't pay for the things that will make it kind of a better place going forward. So I want to talk about now Biden's effort to uh, hopefully pass a big tax increase in uh, the, the coming months. But first, before we get to the federal level, I want to talk about the state and local level, because this is another area where there's a, a huge need for revenue. And it's an area where taxes are uh, really highly regressive, as your institute has documented, hitting the poor the hardest. Uh, in some key states, Texas, Florida, there's no income tax at all. Uh, there are legal obstacles to raising taxes in, in some states, like Proposition 13 in California, where I live. Uh, you worked at the state level for a long time, um, leading an institute that was part of, the, uh, of, a, of a whole network of state-level policy groups. Uh, why are tax systems at the state level so unfair? Yeah, well, there's there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, and it's a great question because um, we, we have to kind of pack past tax fairness at the, at the state level and at the federal level. And um, my organization, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, has a model of the tax system in, in all 50 states so and in DC. So we can tell you for any tax change that's proposed, who's gonna pay more and who's gonna pay less. And so to get back to your question, um, Part of the reason is the same reason that the federal tax system doesn't do what it should, which is that it's complicated and there are lobbyists who are paid a lot to um, get, get breaks for their particular interest and their particular community. Part of the reason is that there's this real race to the bottom among states, um, and Greg Arroyo at Good Jobs First has certainly documented this over and over again, but you know, it's really easy for governors to sort of feel that if they have a lower tax rate than the neighbor, that that's going to somehow enable them to lure jobs. It's actually really untrue because the the conditions that make um, for a strong economy actually require that you educate your workforce. They require that you have a good infrastructure to get products out to market. Um, they require that you have a great university system so that you can do research that supports the industries in your community. But um, it's it's easier to say I cut taxes, you know, than to build up all those powerful public institutions. So I think that those are some of the reasons. Um, I if I can go on for just one more second, I'll say that in addition to the kind of undemocratic practices that you've talked about, like in California, um, we've got a whole set of state tax policies in the South that were actually kind of Jim Crow era policies 
that were put in place to make sure that we didn't have adequate spending on communities of color and that um, that we didn't have real democracy in terms of tax systems that reflected the priorities of the majority of people in a state. So in a lot of southern states, you need supermajorities to pass a tax increase. Um, that kind of anti-democratic practice that actually means a majority of people may support something and we still might get a much worse result. Well, Progressive tried to get around some of these obstacles in the last election. There was at least two major ballot initiatives to raise taxes on uh, the wealthy. One was in California, which was aiming to to try to reduce uh, the, the, the dampening effect of Proposition 13 by uh, raising taxes on commercial real estate. Uh, that was voted down. There was another ballot initiative in Illinois that would move, would have moved that state to a progressive income tax, a big hike for uh, ta taxes on the rich in Illinois. That was voted down. Um, and it was voted in Illinois. A single hedge fund guy, Ken Griffin, spent $50 million, I believe, uh, trying to stop that ballot initiative. But to me, the kind of one moral of the story of both those ballot initiatives is that Raising taxes on the rich is very popular, as you say, polls show in, in principle, but in practice, it seems like proposals for tax increases are easily demonized, easily politically attacked, uh, and quite vulnerable to, to not succeeding. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you're in California, so you can maybe speak to the degree to which the um, tax fairness ballot initiatives in California this year put forth an honest portrayal of what they were actually going to do. I mean, my sense is that there was a lot of deception in the advertising. At the Absolutely. same, you know, at the same time, like we have got to interrogate our wins and we've got to interrogate our losses or we will never get anywhere on anything in public policy in the United States. And I'll just say, um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot that we have to learn from Illinois and from California. I'll just also say, you know, in my, um, role of, of trying to sometimes have a glass half full narrative as well. We won a big tax justice fight in Arizona. We won a um, legislative initiative in New Jersey. And one of the things about Arizona where we raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for schools is, and you're going to love this, David, because of because of what you're trying to do with Blue Tent and in general, is that it was, you know, it was years of organizing and building toward this. It was years of investing in people and in teachers and in community organizing in Arizona that helped to turn that around, as well as sort of a crisis situation for the Arizona schools. So I think that we do have to acknowledge that, like, if it's an ad war, um, it's perhaps really challenging for progressives to win, especially given the way that ad campaigns are funded and that, you know, campaigns in general are funded. But that if we take the time to really build and work with people and hear people out, um, especially working class and low income people, about what is and isn't working in their communities and what their communities need, I think we can get some wins as well. Just one more, uh, one last point about state taxes. Uh, you'll notice that in California, which has a top income tax, uh, state income tax on wealthy people, 13 percent, uh, that um, the state is looking at a surplus this year because high earners have not been so hit by the pandemic. California is therefore in a very good uh, position in terms of dealing with all these emergency costs. In New York, where Governor Cuomo has resisted that kind of surcharge on wealthy earners, top rates only about 8%. 
it's facing a massive $15 billion deficit. So ho hopefully the message here will to elected Democrats like Cuomo, who often will resist those taxes on the rich, hopefully the message here will get through that 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 money can really be critical, especially in times of emergency. Right. And especially in a grow in an economy that is growing in its inequity, right? Like we have this K-shaped recovery. And one of the lessons of the K-shaped recovery is that if your tax system is regressive, you are screwed. And if your tax system is progressive, you know, you've got some income kind of helping you through that. And the um the other thing about this pandemic recession that we're in right now is that there have been some companies and corporations that have walked away with tremendous profits and, you know, more power to them, I guess. But we ought to be really thinking about that because there are some places where states or the federal government has traditionally gotten its resources that aren't doing as well. Right. If you're if you're really dependent on the service industry or the restaurant industry um, for your tax base you're going to be in trouble right now. But then there are there are these other industries like Amazon, like Netflix, that have really benefited from this um, this recession. And, and we really ought to be making sure that we can tap those resources. And Amazon was one of the companies, one of the huge profitable corporations that paid nothing in taxes in 2018. That's like just not going to work going forward. And I do think that, as you said before, the public really understands that this system is skewed in favor of the wealthy and they do support uh, higher taxes on, on the wealthy and corporations. And to me, it just seems like something fundamental has changed in tax policy debates and the politics around them. The epithet of tax and spend liberal used to be like the most damning uh, that could be attached to Democrats. It's just I just don't feel like you hear that as much. And in a way, Trump, who came along and was not in any way a deficit hawk, uh, really has sort of helped change change the politics around it, that there's not such an obsession, uh, a worry about the size and cost of government. Is that your perception, that, that Democrats have a lot more leeway here than they used to? I think 100%. I mean, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ran on a platform of we're going to raise taxes on wealthy people and corporations, and we're going to pay for the things we need. And look, we're coming out of a period when our underinvestment in healthcare, <laughs> the fact that compared to every other country, you know, we're the only one that still has uninsured people, the fact that we just haven't funded the basic public health infrastructure, um, and then, you know, some non-tax issues like the fact that people don't have paid sick days and can't stay home when they feel sick and, and um, you know, uh, have to go in and work in a meatpacking plant elbow to elbow with, with other um, employees really, really killed us. But the but the fact is, I think we saw in 2020 in a way that we haven't in a long time between the fires out where you live and the pandemic, we saw that we've got to invest in some long-term things that are really going to make our country work better and our planet work better and our, you know, and our, our systems work better and our communities work better. And, and most of those require adequate revenue and some spending. And like, ultimately, you know, would you rather have like the newest toy or would you rather that your kid have a decent school to go to? These things do hurt regular people when they are underinvested in. And we see that to the tune of 400,000 dead right now, which of course is partly due to Trump's rejection of basic public health measures, but it's also largely due to our underinvestment in workers and in our healthcare system. 
it's crazy. We've had all these low taxes. The rich have nicer homes, bigger homes, multiple homes, uh, all sorts of toys. And we have crumbling infrastructure uh, and, 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 and failing schools. And it's just, uh, to me, it's remarkable. Um, well, can, you, please, can, I just, can you indulge me in one more point on that? One more yeah. Yes. Answer on that point. Because one of the things that, that I've seen is that, you know, the way we structure our economy, it's like it requires individual people to have these resources for things that, that we'd all be better off if they were just publicly provided, right? So everybody's got to have two SUVs and everybody's got to buy their kid a car when they turn 20, when they turn 16 years old or whatever the driving age is in your state. And wouldn't we be better off if our kids could just like take a train somewhere? <laughs> so it's just kind of ironic because there are a bunch of things that we require individuals to pay for in the United States from college to childcare to pre-K to transit that in a lot of other places are sort of considered part of the social contract. And they end up meaning that you can get by with a more working class salary. Yeah. Yeah, well, speaking of efforts to raise revenue and invest in new public goods, let's talk uh, about Biden's tax plan. Two months ago, it wasn't at all clear that he would get a shot at raising taxes because the Senate was still up for grabs. But now he's he's really in a position to to get through that uh, $3.3 trillion tax plan, or at least some large components of it. Uh, the budget, of course, is one place where uh, a president can can achieve a lot with only 51 votes in the Senate. Uh, so I have, a, I have a few questions for you about how this this might play out. Uh, first, do you think that Biden's tax plan is big enough? Three trillion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but uh, that total is raised over a decade uh, at a time. That's three hundred million dollars a year at a time when the federal budget is now north of four trillion dollars a year. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of money to me. I mean, we have have a you know trillion dollar plus deficits. So, is it big enough, and why isn't it bigger? Yeah. You know, I think that um, Joe Biden ran, he ran talking a lot about raising taxes. And so I think we should hold him to it. And I think he wants to be held to it. I don't think he's a, he's apologetic about it at all. Like, I think he, he really has run on a robust agenda of like, there are things our communities need, and we should, we should pay for them. Um, so I think that's a huge victory for the tax justice movement, just for starters. But yes, you're right. Like on every element where Joe Biden has a tax proposal, we see ways that he could probably go a lot further while still making the system fairer and still not at all uh, tapping into middle class or low income families um, incomes. So I, I do agree with you that there are lots of things that we could do to make this package bigger and more robust. Um, and that would actually make it a fairer economy going forward. And, you know, we can we can get into the sort of nitty gritty of that on, on each of the pieces. I will just also say, though, like we're in a recession right now. And so it is necessary and fine for us to incur debt to pay to get ourselves out of this recession. And as we really learned from the last recession, like the much bigger danger is that we do too little and we're too cautious. Um, and, you know, the. Republicans have lost all credibility on this because they were perfectly willing to incur deficits and debt to give away bigger tax cuts um, to the very wealthiest and to corporations. And so um, they don't have a lot of credibility if we say now we actually need to take on some debt to deliver health care to more people or to help people who, you know, can't, who might get evicted. 
So I think that there's in the short term, we can do a lot with deficit financing, but in the long term, we do need to restore tax fairness and, and we could go further than what Biden has put forth. Well, I'm wondering about whether that $3 trillion tax plan is uh, going to get through the Senate. Uh, do you have a sense of how moderates, Joe Manchin in particular, feel about this and whether or not, again, you only need 51 votes. Uh, what is the, you know, John Tester and Joe Joe Manchin wing of the party in the Senate think about this $3 trillion proposal? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have always been curious why Joe Manchin would, I mean, I understand why he is a more moderate Democrat on a lot of things, but I've never understood why he would be a more moderate Democrat when it comes to economic justice issues, given that he represents one of the poorest states in the country, if not on some measures, the poorest. And so, um, for example, I know that there were reports that he was balking at, you know, extending the rest of the promised stimulus payments. Um, and I think he's actually coming back into the fold on that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he should, right? Because West Virginia has a higher share of people that would benefit from that than New York or California do. And um, so, you know, so it doesn't, I don't think it makes a lot of sense when you represent a lot of poor people and a lot of working class people to say that you're not for things that would put more money in the pockets of working class families. Um, I also think that there are, you know, procedural reforms that I think are being thought about, like, you know, that that could be helpful to making deals again. And one thing about um, Joe Biden is that he does understand how the system works and he, he believes in making deals. And, you know, that has its strengths and its weaknesses. But it means that, you know, he doesn't he doesn't view everything as a sort of ideological war. He views it as like people who are trying to represent their constituents and what is it that your constituents need and how can we get to a situation that works better? And I think tax justice is very much what Joe Manchin and John Tester need for their states. Yeah, what's not to like? Uh, raise taxes on a bunch of rich people who live in California, uh, New York, uh, Florida, and get more services for the residents of West Virginia and Montana. I mean, it, 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 it seems like a win. And I think you're right there that that on those economic issues, Joe Manchin is very different than he might be on issues of, of guns or, or marriage equality or, or, or those hot button uh, cultural issues, which so animate uh, his his constituents, apparently. Uh, uh, West Virginia, by the way, has the highest percentage of people in the country who depend on uh, government benefits. This uh, state that Trump won twice by double digit margin. Uh, Really weird kind of politics. I mean, you, I think of politics fundamentally as uh, being about who gets what and uh, the way in which uh, red state politicians often fight uh, benefits that will benefit, that will go to their constituents and are financed by taxes uh, of wealthy people who live in blue states has always been kind of confusing to me. Um, so anyway, do you think I mean, if you had to make a prediction, does Biden get his $3.3 trillion tax plan uh, through the Senate? And uh, if so, I mean, are there things that, that he may have to drop or that uh, will be left by the wayside along uh, along the path to this, to that success? Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of better people you could have on as political pro prognosticators. Um, I would just say he should, you know, that there's there's just a lot that we really need that's in that package. Um, the economic relief to individuals, um, 
improvements to the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit, state and local aid, which like every governor should be pestering their delegation to be supporting, um, and you know, resources for vaccine distribution. Um, so there, there is a lot in that package that really benefits like every corner of this country from, I don't know, Maine to Hawaii. Is that the geographic reach, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so I, I, I think that, that he, he really should be pushing hard on that. And I think he's come out swinging on it in a really exciting way. Um, so, you know, I'm quite sure that it will go through some changes, but I, I think that it makes a lot of sense. What is the timing here? I know that there's first there's going to be this big COVID relief bill and then the budget and tax uh, bill will come later. Is that like in in down uh, down in October or something? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that I that I know the exact timing. I think that the uh, there's a lot that's in the COVID relief bill that delivers economic justice. And so I think I've been really focused on sort of what what are those elements? So let's talk about a couple of details of the Biden's tax plan uh, within the context of some longstanding kind of progressive priorities and tensions within the within the Democratic coalition. Uh, I'm going to start with the proposal to roll back the cap imposed uh, under Trump on state and local property taxes. This, of course, made uh, you know, lawmakers from New York and New Jersey go ballistic. You know, Schumer has been, you know, because that that provision really hurt a lot of uh, blue state affluent suburbanites. Uh, and uh, getting rid of it is is definitely in uh, Biden's Biden's plan. Uh, and I can see the political argument for that. Uh, Democrats rely heavily on these affluent suburban uh, voters. I can't really see the fairness argument for it. Why, if you live in a a wealthy suburb and you pay $40,000 in taxes to send your kid to a great public school, you should better get to write off every last cent of that. Do you, do you see an argument for, for why that should be in that tax plan? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that, that the, it's not a very fair proposal. Um, the fact is that if we replace the SALT deductions, it will um, benefit wealthy families the most. And so, I think that what we need to do is to reform deductions more broadly in a way that doesn't enable people to deduct nearly as much, um, but but does allow working class families to have deductions in place. And I want to build on that question uh, about that uh, gift to affluent uh, upper class, um, upper middle class suburbanites uh, with the question broadly about you know, since Obama, there's been this sort of mantra around taxes uh, uh, among Democrats that we're never going to raise taxes for anybody who makes under $250,000. Uh, more recently, it seems to have been raised to we're never going to raise taxes for anybody who makes under $400,000. And so as I understand uh, where the revenue is, uh, I mean, yes, you can get a lot of revenue from rich people, but you really need a broad tax base, and three fourths of that George Bush tax cut, which was so devastating in two thousand one, went to people making under two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You need to tax the upper middle class uh, to raise more revenue. Democrats seem to have put themselves in this position where they're unwilling to even think about it. And I wonder if you share my concern about that. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I mean, I think that there's a lot of revenue to be gotten from the very wealthy and from corporations, but there's a lot of revenue to be gotten from the wealthy. And let's face it, if you earn $350,000 in the United States of America, you're wealthy and um, you're, you're doing much better than most people by a long shot. And so I think that it makes a lot of sense to not box ourselves in that way and to put in place um some tax changes that would that would actually generate revenue from, you know, the upper middle class, the the wealthy and the very, very wealthy and do it in a way that generates more from the very, very wealthy. Right. Like if you talked a little bit about a wealth tax, I think that's absolutely part of the equation. I think reforming our estate tax which has been just kneecapped entirely so that now you uh, you know a couple can leave 23 million dollars to their heirs before we touch it in any way shape or form. I mean talk about an anti-American idea, right? So I think that that we can do a little bit of both um but you're absolutely right that like boxing ourselves into you know nobody under $400,000 should pay a penny more does not make sense. Well, especially at a time when we will be forced to cut a lot of discretionary programs. I mean, you know, you're familiar with the long-term budgetary outlook for the federal government. I mean, the squeeze is going to be on for decades to come because of increasing entitlement costs and debt servicing. And it's, that squeeze is going to really hit low-income low people hard. And, and we need that revenue uh, from the middle class and upper middle class professionals who can afford to pay. Um, one other area of concern I want to ask you about with this Biden tax plan <clears throat> that also goes to a longstanding uh, progressive uh, priority, which is preserving Social Security. The Biden tax plan is uh, proposing to raise the payroll tax uh, uh, to basically get rid of the payroll tax cap right now after $137,000 or whatever it is you don't have to pay payroll taxes on income ab above that for social security and the biden tax plan wants to get rid of that so if you make over four hundred thousand uh, dollars you get hit with that full uh, you, the payroll tax just is is applied to all your income uh, i find that problematic because social security is sort of based upon this 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 notion that there's an some kind of equity what you pay in uh, you pay in, you get back, there's some sort of semblance between what you pay in and what you get back, and that that has been one of the brilliant things that has allowed Social Security to be so popular. And my fear is that if you really ramp up the taxes on rich people for Social Security, uh, it's going to turn that program into a target. Uh, do you have any of those concerns? Um, I don't share that concern to the same degree that you're articulating it right now. I mean, you know, I think that Social Security is popular because it is retirement security. It is a universal program. Um, and I don't think that most people are focused on, you know, what happens after $137,000. Um, and I think most people would would recognize that that just doesn't seem very fair, right? Like it doesn't seem very fair that somebody who earns $60,000 pays the payroll tax on all of their earnings and somebody who, who earns $180,000 doesn't pay the payroll tax on all of their earnings. So I don't I don't share your concern. I think there that Social Security remains really popular because everybody knows that um, that there are people who depend on it for retirement and everybody knows that everybody pays into it and everybody gets something out of it. Um, 
you know, you, you may have read more about it than I have, but I, I think it, it's going to remain a kind of third rail of American politics, even if we allow that cap, which never made much sense to me, to, to go away. Well, let's hope that's the case. Uh, and finally, um, I want to ask you about the lack of a wealth tax. I mean, d- during the in the Biden plan, there is no wealth tax. Uh, during the primaries, both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders proposed pretty groundbreaking wealth taxes uh, on on fortunes of $50 million or more uh, would have raised a ton of money. I mean, this was a, a, a huge uh, source of revenue that could finance a lot of things. Uh, nowhere to be seen in the Biden tax plan. Um, why do you think that is? And uh, are, is that something you're worried about? Yeah, it absolutely is something I'm worried about. I, I, I think that we need a wealth tax in the United States. We're never going to get to an equitable economy where um, black and brown people and working class people have a fair shot at anything as long as people can pass along wealth in this dynastic way, um, generation after generation. And the 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 way that returns to wealth are, are undertaxed in comparison to, um, you know, compensation for working also makes no sense. So I was disappointed that that was not part of the Biden tax plan. What I will say is that I think that there are a lot of elements in the Biden tax plan that begin to get us in that direction and that we can tackle those first, given that he ran on those. So he talks about um, estate tax reform. I think I mentioned that, you know, a couple can leave $23 million tax-free to their kids. Um, he talks about uh, addressing the step-up basis, where if you inherit a house, you inherit it at its current value. So, so your parents never paid taxes on the appreciation and value that it ha- that it got, and then you don't pay those taxes either. That doesn't make sense. Or if you inherit a huge tax portfolio, um, stock portfolio, I mean that the same thing. So, I think that there's a lot that we can do in the in the um, constraints of what Biden has put forth that can be kind of a down payment on a future more fair tax plan. I'll say one more thing, which is that we currently tax earnings on work more than we tax earnings on wealth. So capital gains um, enjoys this this lower tax rate than, than wages. Um, so that's another kind of return to wealth that doesn't seem fair. And, and Biden has talked about reforming that. So I think we can start with those things. And look, let's let's show the United States, let's show Americans that we can deliver economic justice with a Democratic House and Senate and president. And then in two years, you know, let's take it further. Last, last thing I want to ask you about, which is uh, the global tax system. Uh, we've had all these revelations about how wealthy people and corporations stash huge amounts of of money overseas. Uh, wealthy people do it in America. Wealthy people do it uh, in Europe. Uh, and wealthy people notoriously do it in places like Russia and Africa. And and you know we have this whole sort of shadowy world of of this offshore banking system with trillions of dollars in it. Um, and I wonder, does some of this, sometimes looking at that, does that make you feel like, wow, trying to ever tax rich people is is hopeless until you can really deal with that global, that, that porous global tax regime? And is there anything that you know of that the Biden administration is interested in doing on that front? Yeah, I mean, so we, I think just starting with taxing overseas profits, um, we tax them less than we tax domestic profits earned domestically. 
which not only encourages stashing money overseas, it actually encourages moving economic activity and jobs overseas, um, which doesn't make any sense from from any of from any political or policy standpoint. So uh, we think we we should eradicate the difference between those things. I think Biden has proposed reducing the difference between those rates. Um, so I think that that would be a start. You know, I know that when um, you know that this is another area where you just have complex tax policy that corporate lobbyists really benefit from making more complex and from going in and kind of getting a special giveaway for their sector. Uh, so I'm, I think that it's less easy and more complicated than some other parts of our tax code, but we absolutely have to tackle it. And, you know, we can, we, we just have to, it's, there's a will issue and then there's the complexity issue and they're two different things, but we can start with at least wanting to tackle it. I think we need international sanctions on those places that provide a tax haven with, with low tax rates and lack of transparency, because this costs everybody, every country is, is hemorrhaging uh, revenue because of this offshore system. But I haven't seen anybody talking about this sort of a kind of broader diplomatic crackdown on this. Have you? I have not. But I mean, I will just say, like, I think we took a big step toward rejoining the international community. Um, so so maybe there's room because of that for us to kind of start chipping away at that. Um, you know, it helps to not back out of the Paris Climate Accord. You know, there, there are things that we have done that I think have alienated our longtime allies. And um, so I think there's, there's a lot of room there, but I'm, I'm not familiar with the exact kind of proposals that are out there. So is there anything else before we close about the, the Biden tax plan that you're excited about or any other aspects that are you're seeing happening uh, uh, around tax policy in Washington that you want to spotlight for people? Yeah, well, there's one just really quick thing, right? Like as we try to work through a system where we've got a very slim majority, which is just that the IRS, is devote, the IRS devotes more of its resources to um, auditing low-income families and far less than it used to, to auditing the top. And that's part of the reason that someone like Trump is able to get away with paying no taxes while living a life of luxury and bragging about it. Um, and so I think that like a really quick thing we, sh we could do, I mean, we should fund the IRS more long term, but even before we get to that point, we can redirect resources within the IRS away from auditing people who qualify for low-income tax credits and toward people who are, you know, evading taxes on enormous estates. So that's, that's just like one quick thing that I'd like to see happen really um, with more speed while we work out the rest of it. Well, it's estimated that the IRS loses hundreds of billions of dollars in tax revenue every year to cheating. So that does seem like low hanging fruit of money that you could get without having to uh, impose more taxes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's another thing about our tax system that, that kind of gets back to your very first question, David, which is that, you know, part of the reason that people, that people fear that taxes are unpopular is people don't think that everybody's paying them and they're right. But, you know, most people pay their taxes, right? Most people pay what they owe. And why is it that we should have a system where the very wealthiest, the very ones who need the resources the least, are the ones who get away with not paying everything that they owe? So I think we can do a lot just to like restore faith in government, which you and I both care about a lot, um, by by making sure that we're enforcing our tax code, you know, and um, 
we've heard a lot of rhetoric, very hollow rhetoric about enforcing other laws in our society. Well, we should enforce environmental laws. You know, we should enforce workplace safety laws. We should enforce tax law. And enforcing all of those laws would actually build a fairer society um, in contrast to maybe some of the ways that law and order is thrown around. Amy, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, great talking to you, David.